0: Hi, I'm Rick Hugh, and welcome to the Winding Life Podcast. It's my pleasure today to be speaking with Scott Cousins. Scott founded and continues to work in a successful boutique law firm in Calgary. As a young man, Scott's number one passion was hockey and sports. But the reality of size and skill caused a rethink of what he wanted to do with his life. Scott would be the first to admit that his career and life direction has not been straight and narrow. He started off as an electrician, then became a lawyer in a large downtown law firm, followed by a change to his own smaller law firm. Along the way, Scott became the co-host of a popular nationally televised series, Canadian Pickers. We hear about how and why Scott made the decisions to change, and hear about his passions and thoughts on living a full life. And now, my conversation with Scott Cousins. Well, it's my pleasure to be talking with Scott Cousins, whom I've known for a few years and who has led a very varied life and a really interesting life. And, you know, he's the epitome of the type of person and guest that I I really look forward to talking with. And so, Scott, thank you. Thank you very much for taking the time to, to be with us. It's a pleasure to be here. Great, so I thought we'd just go over with a little bit about you know, what you're doing now and then sort of start to work our way backwards to, you know, to what you were doing in the past.
1: Okay, well right now my wife Lana and I have a small law firm in Kensington in Calgary. We've both been practicing for a number of years. I think this will be, including my articles, this will be my 31st year practicing and Lana has practiced for around 21 years. Mm-hmm. So, so that's what we're doing now in a smaller firm. We both came up in a big firm, but we decided to make a move to a small firm.
0: So looking around your, your boardroom here, I see that you've got a very sort of eclectic taste and you've got lots of things that I assume remind you of the things that you love.
1: Well, and that's one of the things we tried to do when we came over here. We, again, we'd both been in big firms and I haven't got a problem with a big firm, but it is a little bit more sterile and you have to sort of conform to what they expect of you. We decided when we came over here, we wanted this to reflect our personalities mm-hmm. as opposed to a standard setting. And most people that come in here say, wow, this is the coolest law office we've ever <laughs> <laughs> been to. So that's what we wanted to do because we both have pretty eclectic tastes. Yeah. It's, it's, we yeah. don't stick to one area. It's if we like it, we like it. And yeah. and that, that's my attitude with buying things. If I like it, I buy it. If I don't like it, I don't buy it. I don't care how much it's worth. i just yeah. not interested I mean, that, if I don't like it.
0: That's fantastic because it's just such a difference from what you call normal people, so to speak, that... uh, (laughs) We're hardly normal. (laughs) Yeah, and I suspect that because of this expression that you haven't followed the straight and narrow arrow-like pathway that you know, you, you get born into a family that says you're going to be a lawyer when you're three years old and, <laughs> yeah, and that no, type of thing.
1: Not not what, at what's, all. What's your childhood? What was your childhood like? Well, you know, it's funny. I mean, I've, I've had a number of concussions playing hockey, so I can't really remember <laughs> my very, very early years, but uh, but I was born in Ontario, Brampton, mm-hmm. Ontario. We actually lived in, in a small town outside of Brampton, but that was close. to hospital.
0: But that was in the day when Brampton was a real place as opposed to <laughs> Yeah. yeah.
1: It was a, it was its own city. Yeah. At that point in time or town I'm not Sorry sure.
0: Brampton's still a real place but yeah. <laughs> I think you get
1: what I'm saying. <laughs> it's been subsumed yes, into a larger yeah. environment. Yeah. But my dad worked in a, we worked in a small town on the, for the life of me the, Georgetown I think it was. It, that's where he worked but we had to go to Brampton I got delivered there. We lived in mm-hmm. in Georgetown for a while. And uh, I could tell you a funny story about what what happened when we left. But we we left Georgetown when I was young. I don't remember anything about Georgetown. Then we moved to Quebec and I lived in a small place called Beloy, which is in Uh Montreal. But it was an English speaking enclave of Montreal. So then when I was eight, we moved to Calgary. My dad got transferred. My dad always hated Toronto, (laughs) always hated any big city. And, And the chance to come out to Alberta, and the mountains and fishing and camping and all of those things appealed to him so much so as soon as he got the chance on a plane out here
0: and so what did he do what was his occupation
1: well he was my dad was uh he was a very interesting character um and he he was a, an incredible athlete mm-hmm. growing up in toronto he actually i think he was in i think he was in Mississauga I think is where he grew up which again has been subsumed into Toronto (laughs) but he was an exceptional baseball player and an exceptional hockey player as a goaltender. He played with the Toronto Marlies and then he Mm -hmm. played also he played in the Florida League as a baseball player. I think he he at one point in time had to try with the Baltimore Browns, okay, I think so, they were at that time.
0: So very close to professional. Oh yeah, yeah.
1: incredible. Yeah. incredible. He, said, he said he would have been a pro baseball player if he could just hit because <laughs> <laughs> he was an incredible outfielder, center fielder. But after he finished playing sports, he met my mom. He went down to the Florida State League and he got lonely, came back up, married my mom, and then uh, they he, he said, okay, I got to do something else other than sports. Mm-hmm. And he started at the docks of, a, of an electrical wholesale company okay. and worked his way up mm-hmm. to be essentially the Albert or the Western Canadian representative of that electrical wholesale company called Federal Pioneer Electric. It's since been bought out by a couple of people, but, but, but that's what my dad did. so that's how the transfers went. he got transferred to different places yeah, okay. and yeah. uh, and I the, the funny story is, I have actually on my desk, I have a bronze bust of Diefenbaker mm-hmm. because w- my dad worked in Georgetown and when they cancelled the Avro Arrow
0: it oh, okay. caused I a huge yeah.
1: amount yeah. of problem. Yeah. So, so I know this isn't necessarily politically correct, but my dad used to always say they should dig Diefenbaker up and hang him as a traitor. <laughs> <laughs> so so that, I have a I have a bronze of Baker on my desk with a noose around his neck.
0: But, but that was the last vestige of a real aerospace industry in in Canada. You it, know,
1: absolutely, and of course it, it affected my dad personally because yeah. they had bought a house in there, and as yeah, soon as the course, average aero yeah. era went down, then yeah. and, and then all the house so prices that turned him right
0: off of that central Canada. You know, yeah,
1: yeah. Exactly. So, so anyway, that, that's what my dad did, yeah. and he worked night school, went, went to night school, worked full-time, went to night school to try and get his electrical um, degree of okay. some sort. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, not not a university degree, but a yeah. college degree. Yeah. I still got all the papers that he had, when it, all, his, all his books and everything, and, and worked his way up yeah. right from that job all the way up. So,
0: so that was sort of the, the, the background for you when you were a kid, you know, getting out into the outdoors, sports and hard work it sounds like <laughs>
1: yeah yeah well my dad was never shy about work i can tell you
0: that <laughs> and so can you recall it, what what your what your sort of grand desire was when, when you were a kid well you know
1: it's it, but the the best i can remember and of course i literally cannot remember much from mm-hmm. eight back except i can remember being walking to the st- to school one day the day after robert kennedy got shot that i remember. Yeah. but apart from that i don't remember much other than playing sports. Yeah. cuz in ontario or in quebec i mean, uh, baseball was a massive thing there. Mm. so i played baseball yeah. when i was there and i played hockey in the winter time. and and so that's my major memory. and of course we come out here and baseball is quite a bit different in alberta than it was mm. in montreal like when you played in montreal you played major league baseball rules. Okay. You could lead off, you could steal, everything was just like the majors. You came out to Calgary and it was, it was you couldn't lead off, you couldn't that's, steal. That's what they mean by bush week. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> so I changed from baseball to lacrosse. Uh-huh. So I played okay. lacrosse in the yeah. summer, hockey in the wintertime. Yeah. And, and sports were sort of my life. That's what I loved doing and, yeah. and that's what I remember the most about growing up is, is playing sports. And it's so interesting now because everything's changed so much. Like, I think now the things we used to call each other in on the lacrosse <laughs> rink or box or the hockey rink, even for, with friends, yeah. we used to call, you call mean each the, other. The names. trash talk. Oh gosh, yeah, because because I always played. Most of my friends were in sports. They weren't in school mm-hmm. uh, for one reason because. For some weird reason, in, in Quebec, they accelerated me a grade, took me from grade one to grade three. So I was always older, or younger, sorry, than everyone in my gr- grade, and I was always a grade ahead of all my friends. Right. So most of my friends that I actually had were in sports. And and the, the interesting thing about that was, because of that, I had as many Catholic friends as I had Protestant friends. <laughs> because and, and I had friends from all, look, we didn't have, when I grew up in Calgary, there weren't a whole uh, lot of racial minorities we had a fairly uh, significant Mm -hmm. Asian population because of course many many I said to my friend Jeff Marr uh, one time your family's been in this country longer than my family's been in this country but in terms (laughs) of uh, of, uh, I guess I wouldn't call them African Americans but African Canadians we didn't have that many Mm -hmm. of them out but they all played sports so I interacted with all of them you know native kids Canadian, you know, black kids, Asian kids, we all interacted together. This is a
0: common theme that I've heard among the people that we've talked to that when they were young, they got exposure to a lot of different people and they, they really sort of got exposure on an on a informal, friendly basis as opposed to, this is so-and-so who's from such-and-such.
1: I never even thought about that. Yeah, You know, I, I, it's, it's funny, I said to my friend Jeff Marr, one time we, were, we went to law school together. And Jeff's a, he's a commercial real estate guy. I, in I know County Jeff, now. Yeah. A real, yeah. real good guy. He's the guy yeah. that helped me get my bike when I was into cycling. But I said to Jeff, you know, I said, Jeff, until you brought it up, I never really thought you... I didn't, never even noticed you were Asian. <laughs> it never crossed my mind because I'd grown up with yeah. so many people that, that it never crossed my mind. And, and my parents were absolutely not a racist bone in their body, yeah. right? So we never heard anything at home that would lead us yeah, to believe so that there just, was anything Yeah, so it was just different.
0: normal to be interacting with people. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, yeah so, so you were sort of totally gung-ho sports. And yeah. And did that continue, or what was the... Well, because it can, you're not a
1: professional hockey player right now. I'm not a professional <laughs> hockey player. Uh, <laughs> interestingly, I don't think anyone that knew me then would have expected me <laughs> to have done what I did since then, but. But I played lacrosse right up to junior. Mm-hmm. Used to play on a team with Timmy Hunter who played for the Calgary Flames. He and I grew yeah, yeah. up together in Acadia and played hockey and lacrosse together our, our whole early lives. And then I played junior, I, so I, I played in Calgary, I played Midget A, and then I went to the BC Junior Hockey League. Timmy went the year before, played in the BC Junior League. Then I went to the BC Junior League. He was in Kamloops, I was in Vernon, and we played against each other then which was quite a bit of fun. And then, after that year, I had a cup of coffee with the Calgary Wranglers, and of course, Timmy went on to, to an NHL career. Mm-hmm. I, had a, I played like 11 games, 10 exhibition, or 11 exhibition in one league game, and then I went to the Calgary, ended up with the Calgary Canucks that year, finished my year, I blew my knee out, uh, but that wasn't the reason mm-hmm. I quit. I was five foot five, one 138 pounds in the 1978.
0: Yeah. <laughs> So.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and, and uh, there wasn't much of a future in hockey for a guy that size at that stage yeah. so so I thought you know what and my dad was pretty practical I, I, I had the chance to go to university if mm-hmm. I would wanted to because I went through high school I got barely good enough grades yeah. because my parents nobody in our family had ever gone to university so my parents never ever thought I don't think that I would go to university but they always wanted me to have good enough grades that if I wanted to yeah, I could get could, in yeah. yeah so I you know 62.5, which is I think what you had to have to get into university, <laughs> 62 at that time. So I, I, I had that other than Math 30, a long story about that, but anyway, and I, and I tell my kids about that story many times. But, but, So when I went and played hockey, I finally decided it was time, I wasn't going to yeah. make it. I'd, I'd sort of been offered a, a scholarship yeah. opportunity to play at a college in the United States, but I had no interest in school at yeah. that stage of the game. So I came back and started working at an electrical wholesaler cuz my dad got me a job with somebody yeah. he knew. And then from there on, I uh, became an apprentice electrician and then I became an electrician and worked as mm. an electrician.
0: So how did that transition from, you know, really being so focused on sports and then sort of seeing that that dream wasn't there? How how were you feeling about that?
1: Well, I mean, obviously it it's never fun mm-hmm. to quit doing something that you love doing. Because at that time, I loved playing hockey. Like, it didn't matter whether you get your teeth knocked out or, or cut yeah, or hurt. Yeah. It didn't matter because you loved yeah, it was, the game. It was
0: you. Yeah, it, yeah. Was,
1: it was part of my makeup was yeah. to play sports. And it's always hard to, to lose that competitive mm-hmm. ability to do that, but I was luckily born with a realist gene. <laughs> so either I was born with it or my parents instilled it into me, but I knew yeah. it was time to quit. Yeah. So when I quit, I was okay with it because I knew I could continue to play maybe for five or ten years. I could have gone to Europe and maybe mm-hmm. played in the States, but at the end of the day, I was still going to have to look for a real job. And I thought, you know, better do it now rather than wait.
0: So that, that, was, that was sort of uh, a pragmatic approach to it then. No one was in your ear saying, Oh, you
1: gotta do it at all costs. Yeah, no. I mean look, <laughs> my dad my dad would have loved for me to play in the NHL, but he was a realist too. Yeah. He understood that he didn't make it to the major leagues because he couldn't hit. And he understood I wasn't making it to the major leagues because I was five foot five or five foot six yeah. at the time. I mean he once said to somebody if he was six foot tall he'd be in the NHL. First yeah. round draft choice, but he isn't. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so I, I inherited that realism. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, so that yeah. So, I guess at that, that that instilled a lot of a lot of sort of openness to thinking about other things.
1: Practicality. Yeah. My my mom and dad were very practical people, and they instilled practicality mm-hmm. into me. So, you went to work, and worked as an electrician, yeah. and then. What I would do is I would work as an electrician and then at one point in time I worked almost continuously and then I got laid off from one job Mm -hmm. and I thought I had two months off because I was laid off from a job and at the same time I had to have knee surgery Mm -hmm. Um, so I I couldn't do much for rehab at that point in time. One one of your probably old contemporaries. um, Vince Murphy did it. Uh, yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you have an idea of what kind of surgery he did.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Vince uh, is an old school orthopedic surgeon. That's guy.
1: right. <laughs> so so uh, all I could really do to rehab was walk at that point yeah. in time. So I decided to pick up a set of golf clubs and figured if I'm walking, I may as well try hitting a golf ball. And, and I wasn't very good, but I, but I enjoyed doing mm-hmm. it. So I went out. And then that winter, I sort of went to my dad's garage, set up a net got a bunch of those little <laughs> plastic golf balls, got Jack Nicholas's book. <laughs> and I literally practiced all winter. Yeah, Two hours every all night I'd go every, to the garage yeah. and I'd practice. And I turned myself into a decent golfer. Not a great golfer, yeah. but a decent golfer. And and I thought at that time, you know what, maybe I can work as an electrician in the winter and I can try working at a golf course in the summer. So my dad knew some guys mm-hmm. that, that were involved yeah. in golf course, uh, Bearspaw Golf and Country Club, yeah. and Wib Lamb was the pro there. So I went up and worked there, mm-hmm. and tried, I was going to try and be an assistant golf professional, but I, frankly, I wasn't good enough.
0: So how old were you then?
1: That would have been, I would have been probably 24, 25-ish, yeah. 24 or so then. So, so I tried that for, I think, two seasons, but, you know, frankly, you had to, I got myself to the point where I could shoot in the 80s pretty consistently and I could shoot in the 70s sometimes. But in order to be a golf pro, you've got to shoot under 80 twice in the same day to be an assistant. and yeah. You've got to shoot under 76 I think, <laughs> twice in the same day to be a pro. And I, I came to the conclusion I wasn't good enough to do that, I, I just couldn't do that. So I changed course then mm-hmm. and said okay, I'd, and plus to be honest with you. And, and I admire anybody that works in the golf business because it is not the kind of yeah, job you not... want to have if you want to have a normal life. I mean, I used to get up at 5 in the yeah, morning.
0: Yeah, you're working get, all day, evenings, weekends.
1: I'd get up 5 in the morning every day. I'd drive up to Spa. I'd open up. I'd work. As soon as I got off work, I'd teach lessons. After I taught lessons, I'd go play a of golf with some of the members, and I'd get home at midnight and then I do it again the next day yeah. and it, it is a tough life so those guys deserve a lot of credit because they don't get the glory that the golf professionals right. you see on yeah. TV get but yeah. they do a heck of a lot yeah. of work so I decided that wasn't for me that lifestyle mm-hmm. wasn't for me and I thought okay what do I want to do and and at the same time I had a good friend that was going back to school
0: mm-hmm.
1: to become a chiropractor and he was having trouble with some of the written work that he had to do and he, he asked me if I could help him because that's one of the other things in our family. Our house was filled with books. Yeah. So I read a lot growing yeah. up. So so I could write reasonably well. So
0: your language skills were above average. Yeah.
1: yeah. So so even though I only had a high school education, yeah. I could go and I could help him write his university mm-hmm.
0: uh,
1: essays, you know, I'd, I'd say these are the ideas you should think about, here's how you should think about phrasing it, and that got me interested and maybe I could go back to school yeah. at that stage of the game.
0: So you're 26, 27 yeah, at that time? I would have been
1: about 26-ish yeah. that at that yeah. time because then I en- enrolled in the U of C
0: mm-hmm.
1: and, and originally uh, I thought to myself, well, I wouldn't mind being a teacher it just seemed to me it, it, it thought I'd so like did to you have
0: it. any concerns about going back to like here you are you have you have a, a. You know you're working as an electrician and I'm sure that you know you were doing a reasonable wage with that and you know uh, what were the kind of things that you were going through in your mind to say well maybe I should maybe I shouldn't or was it just pretty straightforward for you
1: well I mean the first thing again practicality yeah. everything comes back to practicality I said, do I want to be doing this when I'm 50?
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And the answer was no, because again, an electrician isn't just kneeling down and putting in plugs. It's digging ditches. It's carrying 100-pound things of pipe. It's a a heavy job. And I said to myself, do I really want to do this when I'm 50? And I said, no, I don't. And I thought, okay, what else do I want to do? And then I thought, why don't I give school a shot? I never Mm -hmm. really did and and it's funny, I go back to I talk to my kids about this all the time. I had a math teacher in grade nine, and I could do anything in school if I wanted to, I just generally didn't want to. And I had a, a math teacher in grade nine, his name was Goliath, which was quite ironic because he was about five foot five. But but he wouldn't let me go into grade ten math math ten. He yeah. said I had to go into math thirteen. And, of course, I didn't know anything about whether I could contest that or not. And My mom and dad didn't really know anything. That's just the
0: way it was, right? Yeah, Yeah, so I
1: went into Math 13, and, of course, I didn't have Math 30, and you needed Math 30 to get into university. So what I did is I went to the dean of the Department of Math at the University of Calgary, and I took him all of my electrical course materials. And oh, okay. I said, look, I don't yeah. have Math 30, yeah. but here's what I took to get my electrical degree. And in those days, I don't think he can do it anymore. In those days, he said, oh, he said, he said, that's university level calculus. You can, I'm going to sign off on you. that yeah. You've got a great uh, Math 30 equivalency. So mm-hmm. fortunately, I got into university yeah. as a result of that.
0: And so, so that really sort of got you into the, into the university process, but you weren't, you weren't aiming to be a lawyer.
1: <laughs> no, well, I, I, and, and there was a digression there that occurred too because around that time, when I went to the golf course, this friend of mine that I was helping with his school,
0: mm-hmm.
1: his dad uh, had funded a, him to, to open a little sporting goods shop in the South Southland Leisure Centre. Okay, South Down Leisure yeah, Centre. Yeah. So there was a little sporting goods store where you'd sell some clothes and rent tubes and do sh- skate sharpening yeah, and things yeah. like that. And he asked me to buy into that that business so I was working at that business at the same time I was going to university so when I was going to university I wasn't working as an electrician I was working at that little place and then I was going to university Mm -hmm. courses and ultimately Tim Hunter ended up coming in as a partner and it was called Tim Hunter Sports at one point in time (laughs) so so that's I've forgotten about that until you just (laughs) raised it but but that's what I was doing for income during that period Mm -hmm. of time. But then, I realized fairly early that I I wasn't cut out for teaching. I I frankly realized I wasn't cut out for being required to conform to somebody else's (laughs) standards of what I should do or say or be.
0: So, (laughs) did you feel that, that whomever was supposedly telling you what to do Wasn't qualified to tell you what to do or what was that dynamic?
1: Well, it was more just I didn't necessarily Buy into the belief system that underlined Mm -hmm. their theory of how you should be a teacher And and maybe that's because of the way I grew up, Mm -hmm. right? The way I grew up was was not a touchy-feely way of growing up It was (laughs) it was like, you know, it was
0: experiential
1: if a guy knocks you down, you get up. <laughs> if he knocks you down again, you get up and bop him in the nose. <laughs> you know, it's, it, wasn't, it wasn't this touchy-feely sort of thing. And, and I, I came to the conclusion that the, the manner in which they were teaching at that day was one of those things where you were supposed to ask about people's feelings and mm-hmm. all that. And, and that's not really my personality. <laughs> so so I, I, I think I came to the conclusion that that wasn't for me. And then I thought, what's the next best thing I could do? And I Mm -hmm. thought, well, everyone used to tell me, because I used to argue a lot, everyone used to tell me (laughs) I should be a lawyer. So I thought, well, why don't I try that? (laughs) And and so was that argumentiveness
0: something that you practice on on, on a daily basis?
1: (laughs) Well, I don't know that I ever intended to, but if you'd ask my mom, uh, she would say that I was constantly, any issue, I would argue
0: About any issue. You sort of present your position and (laughs)
1: Yeah. Yeah. So so anyway, that's the so I thought what the heck, I'll give that a shot, essentially.
0: And so so you um, you applied to law school?
1: Right, yeah. I I had really good marks in in university for the first two years, so I applied to Dalhousie as a as an I guess I would call it a mature student Mm -hmm. at the time. And I was accepted in Dalhousie.
0: And so at that time you were about you about thirty years or something? No, I'd
1: be twenty-eight, because I started yeah. law school in eighty-eight. Okay. I was born in sixty. Okay. So
0: and so Dell is um, quite a difference from from Alberta. I mean I grew up in Halifax and so it's a different Nova Scotia, Halifax is, is a different culture and just knowing what what I know about you, there are parts of it that I think would probably would have fit like a glove. Would've fit you like a glove.
1: Yeah, well, and it, and it did, it, it, and I, another thing, when I talk about my parents instilling into me practicality, adaptation was another thing mm-hmm. that they instilled to me. And I have to confess, uh, you, it, that's one of the great things about university, in my opinion, <laughs> is you really do expand your boundaries, and you expand your understanding of the world and people mm-hmm. and everything like that. You don't have to agree with them, uh, but you expand your understanding. Well, I had no idea what Nova Scotia was going to be like. Mm-hmm. I thought it was going to be like a fishing village, right? <laughs> and it wasn't huge when I was there in, yeah. in the '80s, but it was obviously a real city, and yeah. and it wasn't the fishing village. So when I got there, I was a little surprised that it was it was like Calgary but smaller. Mm-hmm. The people were a bit different
0: yeah.
1: there, and certainly the lifestyle was dramatically different. Like in in Nova Scotia, they they followed the Lords Day Act. Okay, mm-hmm. like you didn't. There was no stores open on Sunday. Yeah, you had to look in the newspaper to find out what gas station <laughs> was going to be open if you were low on gas to tr- to try and get there. And that was right around the time all those Supreme Court of Canada cases were going through about whether whether you could whether you could enforce the Lord's Day Act and whether you had to block off parts of the yeah. store and yeah. everything. So so it was interesting getting adapted to that lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Of, of everything was a lot slower. Yes. Yeah. The traffic was a lot less. The, the people were a lot more laid back yep. uh, than Calgary. And I can tell you that when I left to come back, it was a shock to come back <laughs> to Calgary, where I grew up, because because you had to kick everything yeah. up a notch.
0: Because because you were running at 0. 0.8, yeah. and then you had to get back to 1.0. Right?
1: That's right. <laughs> and in, in Nova Scotia, it might be 0. 0.6 sometimes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and so, so sounds like you, you did enjoy it out there. and as a legal sort of
1: experience what was what was that like for you well that was interesting because of course i didn't have any understanding Mm -hmm. what law school was going to be when i went there i mean i really didn't know and i found that um, the people that the people that are in law school the teachers and the professors some of them i really really liked a lot but they're not like lawyers (laughs) <laughs> they're a totally different they're, breed. So
0: I mean the the academic profess, professorial class is different from the on the street lawyer.
1: Yeah, I would have if I hadn't taken practical courses because again, I was always a very practical mm-hmm. person. So whenever there was a legal aid clinic you could do or a criminal trial practice clinic you could do, I would take those courses as options. But if I hadn't taken those, mm-hmm. I would have known nothing about what it means to practice as a lawyer, I would have understood the law
0: yes, yeah. and
1: I would have, could have understood the evolution of the law and I would have understood what are important principles mm-hmm. of the law, but they don't teach you anything about actually practicing law when you go to university. <laughs> And, and I tell you, it's, it's like getting dropped into the deep end of the pool, which is how I learned to swim. My dad just threw me in the <laughs> lake, and that's how I learned to swim. But when I came back to Calgary and went to work at a law firm, I had no idea, or I would have had no idea yeah. what to do other than those practical courses that I took. Mm-hmm. So I had a little bit of a head start on there. But they don't, I can tell you one thing when you go to a, and I, I started with Code Hunter. And the only reason I was there is because of my friend Jeff Marr. Because I, yes. I said, Jeff, I said, where am I supposed to apply? I have no idea where I'm supposed to apply. And he gave me the names of people to apply to. One of them was Goat Hunter. And and I interviewed with with my mentor, Scott Brooker, he used to be a judge, Justice Scott Brooker. He just retired. But he and I hit it off great in the interview. And, and he's still one of my good friends today. But um, when I got there, I didn't know how to practice law. They don't care about. HLA Hart's theory, you know, uh, 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 they don't care about Kant's theory, they don't care about any of that. They care about, yeah. can you draft can you? this pleading? Can you do this research? Can you go to this court application? And can you get things done on time? <laughs> and, and more importantly, can you do it in a manner in which we can bill for your time? <laughs> you know, so it's a, it's a completely different world. The yeah. world of practicing law and the world of academia...
0: Completely different things. Well, that's very true in all sorts (laughs) of uh, specialties, uh, mine included, yeah. Yeah. And and so you got back and it was a bit eye-opening, but it sounds like you were um, sort of jumping in to to sort of be successful at that. And then it sounds like there was a time that you started to not, not feel as enthusiastic about it.
1: Well, it's funny because, again, I was... Practicality, adaptability—that was what Mm -hmm. my family instilled in me. So I knew that in order to get a job, I knew I was going to have to present myself in the manner in which they expected me. So I went and got, bought myself an expensive suit, and the week before my first interview, I cut my hair because I had long (laughs) hair. I cut my hair. I got my job. I stayed in my suits and worked worked hard did the things that they expected Mm -hmm. me to do acted in the way they expected me to act until such time as i became a partner and then that was it (laughs) (laughs) i didn't wear a suit again unless i was going to court or doing a mediation or something like that that's the only time i would wear a suit and i grew my hair and and i went back to being the person i was yeah,
0: the real scott the real
1: scott yeah. in that circumstance and of course that leads to that leads to issues there are some people in big firms that are quite fine with that they don't care as long as you get your job done right. as long as you right. bill and as long they don't really care if you conform to what they think you should look like or be like uh, there are others that it's a problem for yeah and and that became a problem for me at, at the firm I, I mean it's not that i was ever going to ever going to have to leave the firm if I didn't want to. I mean,
0: I, yeah. once you've made partner, then it's very difficult. To...
1: Well, particularly when you're making partner and you're still doing the billing and yeah, doing all the things you're, you're doing, so, yeah. but, but it made me realize that that this isn't the place I wanted yeah.
0: to be. I mean, clearly, you know, the, the external sort of factors of success, you know, being a partner, um, you know, good revenue stream, uh, respect of the community. Did you feel that there was that that was not what you were about. and
1: Absolutely, yeah. in that sense. And I still am, by yeah. the way. If you read my, if you, if I send you a letter, it doesn't say partner behind my name, okay? Mm-hmm. I don't care about those things. <laughs> don't, don't matter to me, never did matter to me. So, so I never bought into that, that whole concept of it's really important for me to be in a big firm. Well, first mm-hmm. off, I didn't join a big firm. I joined Code Hunter, which was a, moderate, moderate mm-hmm. uh, medium-sized firm at the time I joined it and then when we merged with Gowlings now I became part of a huge yeah. international law yeah. firm but I was never a big firm guy to begin with but it, it, it's funny how you you realize that those trappings aren't important. Mm-hmm. Whether you have partner behind your name isn't important whether you have whether you have gowlings behind your name or some big firm whatever firm Gowlings is no better or worse than any of the other ones it doesn't really mean anything to you as a human being and in fact i loved it when i I tell a funny story i went into a discovery one time with uh, over at papella's firm and the lawyer on the other side didn't know me she'd never met me before and i came in dressed like i am now Uh. to do the questioning and my client came in in a suit she said i didn't know which one was the lawyer and which one was (laughs) so so but i always looked at that as as to be to being to my advantage yes it's like my wife says my wife's a beautiful blonde woman and she said everyone underestimated her because she was blonde and she loved it yeah because she'd let them she let them think she was dumb until she got what she wanted uh, yeah 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 (laughs) And, and so i i always felt that 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 stuff is irrelevant to, to me. It was always yeah. irrelevant. You know, money's great. I mean, money's obviously, and that's one of the reasons a lot of people stay with big firms because yes, you generally yeah. make more money than you do at a firm like ours. But we, we decided, my wife and I decided, we are gonna have kids. And, and we decided at that stage of the game, we wanted to be better in control of how yeah. much we wanted to work, how we wanted to work didn't want to be on a treadmill yeah. wanted to do things our own way which is a big step because you know you're leaving a place where you've been for at that time I had been there for 19 years or 18 so, years.
0: So you, you consciously made that decision and you know you hear now about this thing called the great resignation or the great retirement you know how there's been all sorts of people because of the pandemic getting getting or understanding and reflecting on on their lives and their work, and sort of saying, "No, I, I don't. I don't want that." It
1: sounds like you'd already gotten to that point quite a few years. Yeah, although I'm not I'm not going to say that the work was less. Mm-hmm. It's just that I was in control of it, and yes. I was in control of of and of how much I did when. Like for instance, I, I didn't have to come in at seven o'clock in the morning mm-hmm. because one of the senior guys would walk around to see who was <laughs> in the offices at that point in time. If I wanted to work from nine till midnight at home, yeah. I could do that. And I still do that. So so I'm not sure I would say I work less.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It's just I work differently. Yes. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I, I laugh about this mass resignation thing because there I think there are a few different Flavors of that mass resignation. Yeah,
0: I do think so. Yeah. yeah,
1: some people are making a big choice that look life's too short I'm going to get on with the things I want to do and that's I think that's yeah. admirable other people say well, I'm going to take the opportunity to adjust how I live my life uh, For a whole bunch of different reasons, which again is admirable Then there's other people that just say well, I don't want to work anymore Why would I work when I can get served? You know yeah. and I'm gonna go live in my mom's basement <laughs> Rather than work. I don't I don't admire those people. They can do it if they want, but I don't admire those people
0: (laughs) So 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 you decide to leave and I guess have you have you ever sort of um, I'm sure you have but you know revisited people that were sort of your your sort of cohort in 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 the legal profession who sort of decided to stay for perhaps not being happy to stay but Decided to stay. Have have you had a chance to sort of compare notes or to to? Yeah,
1: know? I don't. Well, I don't have a lot of friends in the legal business mm-hmm. because much like much like when I went to school, most of my friends are outside of yeah. the law. But but there are a couple people uh, I continue to be in touch with. Mm-hmm. One of whom is a really good friend of mine at Gowling's Phil Nickaporik. He and I he was a, I think a year or two behind me when when we started. He and I are good friends. And so I touch base with him every now and then. And you know, it's funny, there's something, there's something maybe in the medical profession as well, but they call it the golden handcuffs. Yes. Yeah. There are some people that would love to leave, but they need the level of income they have Mm -hmm. to support a lifestyle that they want to have. And it makes it very, very difficult for them to leave.
0: Absolutely. Yeah.
1: And I think, I think it would be safe to say that there are lots of other people that would, choose to work here if they could make the same money they made there, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but, but they're trapped in, in, in a sense. And I'm not saying that's not, Phil's, Phil's never expressed that to me, but, but there are people that have led me to the conclusion that, that the money is, is necessary. And you, you, you really, it's tough to make the same level of money at a smaller firm than it is at a bigger firm, it just is.
0: But I guess the, the other side of it though is that, you know, you are your own boss.
1: You're 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 the boss, and my wife's the managing partner, and I do what I'm told, and 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 there's a huge advantage of that. Overall, I mean, it wasn't a real advantage when we started. I can yes, tell you because because yeah. literally the year we started this firm is when Canadian Pickers started. Okay. So you can imagine starting your own firm, and and of course there's a huge risk associated with starting your own firm, right? Absolutely. Because, yeah. Because. You, you may take the work that you have from the big firm with you. You may not. Yeah. You never know, because all you do is you write a letter to the client and say I'm leaving. You either can leave your file with Gowlings or send it with me. It's your choice. Fortunately for me, my clients came with me, so I was okay that way. But but still, I mean, it's it's you know you don't have to worry about billing when you're in yeah. a big firm. You just yeah. do your work, yeah. put your time in, and somebody else takes care of all the admin stuff. Well, I think
0: that. <laughs> That, that's actually you know part of that whole risk equation that that people sort of get very nervous about you know uncertainty of, of uh, income and uh, you know what's going to happen in the future
1: right and you know it's funny i have a I have a, a motto one of my mottos is you need to do what you think is right and accept the consequences mm-hmm. whatever they are at good or bad
0: so do you have like a very obvious example of that or
1: well like for instance I, I felt it was time for us to move on. I accepted the fact that I would be losing income mm-hmm. by coming here. I accepted the fact that that, that there was gonna be a change in how our household worked for yep. a while at least. And and you just accept that consequence. It's it's no different than, you know, somebody that speaks out about a wrong mm-hmm. in society. Yep and then they get hate mail on, on social media for it. That's a consequence, but yeah. you still have to do what you think is right.
0: Yeah, you
1: know, And that, that's, that's sort of my model. I'm not saying I'm always right, I'm just saying I'm doing what I think is right.
0: And you're, you're willing to live with the consequences and, Absolutely. and deal with it. Yeah. 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 So, so you mentioned Canadian Pickers, and so it, I didn't realize that you started your firm around the same time that that came about. Tell me a little bit about how you got to be Scott and Sheldon.
1: Okay. Well, well, I mean, I've been, I've been in sort of collecting antiques my whole life that I can remember. In fact, in my drawer at my desk, I still have a little letter opener that I got when I was about mm-hmm. eight. That was the first thing I ever bought, and I still have that. Maybe I might have been nine because I think I was in Calgary when I got it. So I've always collected. My mm-hmm. mom's mom was, Gladie Maloney was her name, so we came from a good Irish family. <laughs> and well, actually, I shouldn't say that. Her, her name was actually Gladie Elliott, and she married Barney Maloney. <laughs> so so we've got an Irish-Scottish mix there. But she would, uh, she would loved going to, to church sales. In those mm-hmm. days, they didn't okay. have really garage sales. Yeah. They had church sales. And she didn't drive, so she'd get on the bus and go halfway across town on the Mm -hmm. bus to a church sale to go dig around and then she'd usually send me little things home. Like (laughs) It's funny some of the great things she sent me over the years that she found at these church sales. They always had like a white elephant table at the church sale. So my mom came by it honestly. My dad always collected fishing gear and stuff like that. He he was a a big fan of fishing. Mm -hmm. So I came by that, the whole collecting thing a bit honestly, although my brother and my sister, neither of them care about stuff they don't they don't care about stuff really at all are you are
0: you the oldest or the youngest I'm the youngest youngest yeah my brother
1: who was a year behind me in law school Mike he's a judge in the Yukon Mm -hmm. and my sister Leslie was two years older than me she I I think she went and got a she might have a college degree I don't think she got an I don't think she got a university I'm pretty sure she didn't because I was the first one to get a university degree she got a college degree and then she ended up getting married, ha- raising four kids. And yeah, then yeah. went back to work after she mm-hmm. raised her kids. She went back to work for the bank and and she's just retired I think okay. recently.
0: Yeah. yeah. And, and so you got you got the bug, uh, sounds like, from your grandmother. And yeah, uh, or my mom, because yeah. she
1: used to drag me to antique stores okay, in Calgary yeah. and garage sales. Yeah. She'd drag me around. Yeah. Her and a couple of her friends, they all smoked like steam <laughs> engines back then. They'd drag me to these places, and then I'd always look around. But I, I mean, I didn't really have any money to, to buy anything. My mom worked at an auction house. Okay, yeah. It uh, used to be called Galvin Auction in town. So she worked there. So every now and then she'd pick me up something that was going really cheap <laughs> at the auction. She'd bid on it. And what and
0: and was it about you know, these little collectibles or mementos that, that you know, really attracted you? Because clearly, you, you've, you've got a deep passion for it.
1: Yeah, and, and that changes. That's evolved over time. Yeah. Like, for instance, I, like almost every boy, I, I'm not saying every boy, but almost every boy, I was attracted to things like guns and knives when <laughs> I was a kid. Yeah. So any bladed object I was attracted <laughs> to, I mean, we never really had the option to have guns, but, but I think I had my great-grandfather's side-by-side shotgun. And when we played, we used to play war. On the front yeah, line, we yeah, played war. Course, we'd, of course, yeah, yeah. we break it down into two pieces, and one guy'd get the stock, and the other guy'd get <laughs> the, <laughs> the barrels. So, so I was always attracted to that kind of thing. And then I think my mom she bought me like a snake and a mongoose stuffed snake and a mongoose, <laughs> like a cobra with a mongoose attacking it. And so I started with little goofy things like yeah. that, and then then over time I just realized that that it just made me happy mm-hmm. to look at these things. They don't really have any merit in the big scheme of things in society. Although you would tell that to an archaeologist, or <laughs> tell that to the British Museum, that's got a place filled with that kind of stuff. But it's uh,
0: you didn't you didn't set out to you know sort of collect um, you know the ultimate collection of X or Y, and because of its financial value and that kind of thing.
1: No, never did never looked at it as a monetary mm-hmm. thing per se there there obviously there are situations where you buy things and you think they may be worth some money later on in the future but i had to like them too yeah so it wasn't just to buy for the sake of buying like you see guitars well you know i'm i'm hardly a guitar player i can torture it a bit but that's about <laughs> the best i could do but i love guitars i love them structurally i love them artistically yeah. i love everything about them i love the whole music industry and and uh, not the industry, but musicianship uh, in any genre of musicianship, mm-hmm. pretty much. So, so I collect guitars for that reason. And if I, I don't so much. I'm getting older. I don't buy as much stuff now as <laughs> I used to buy. I pretty much only buy stuff I want or like now. I don't really do much for like I don't do it as a business. Yeah, per yeah. se.
0: And then, have you have you conveyed this this sort of? Um... You know this passion to your kids?
1: Well that, that's the most hilarious thing about yeah. it is all of my kids say they don't care about any of that junk. <laughs> but then whenever I go to sell something, they oh, all say hey you, you, can't can't sell sell that. That. <laughs> you can't sell that. <laughs> you can't sell that. You can't sell that. Like I took the other day, Lana said to me, you, Scott you got to clear some stuff out of here. We've got way too much stuff in here. <laughs> so I took Nico and Nash, my, my um, youngest in middle. Liam's in the back room working over there. I took them into the room and I said, okay, I'm going to get rid of some stuff. Tell me if there's anything you don't want me to sell. And they literally they started, started picking everything. everything out. And I just said, forget i am <laughs> giving up. You can deal with it when I'm gone. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so that, that seemed, it, it must be um, like the subconscious sort of infiltration of their, of their brain to, to love these, you know, sorts of you know, things with memory.
1: Well, you know, and it's funny. Doing Canadian Pickers, you meet so many different mm-hmm. people. And I've met so many different kinds of collectors. And you, and you become a bit of a psychologist because you, you try and figure out why the people do what they do. <laughs> right? And, and why they collect what they collect and why they won't sell. Because most of the people that we dealt with were very loath to sell anything mm. at all and and I, I can tell you there's a there's a doctoral thesis uh, that could be written on collectors and that kind of thing but you know Canadian Pickers was one of those areas where you could you could really go in because you weren't trying to we weren't trying to make money i mean that's that's one of in fairness you know you we can talk a, a little bit more about how I got into Canadian Pickers, but, but there's a bit of a fallacy about the show. Okay? We were real. Everything we said and did was real. Yeah. Everything we bought was real. Everything we sold was real. If we made money, we made money. If we lost money, we lost money. That was all real. Okay? But the, the, there's a bit of a fallacy about the show, which is, A, we didn't ride that van all across Canada. Okay? Because if I was going to Newfoundland, on a on a buying trip you can't fit very much stuff in one van no, <laughs> so, no I mean, so so we'd fly into Newfoundland rent a van yeah. and do the thing in there now if we were around Calvary we might yeah. drive around in, <laughs> in our own but vehicles.
0: I mean it's impractical to to try to drive to Newfoundland and back I mean that's a, that's a four-day journey each way
1: look at the at least a four day, right? look at the expenses yeah. associated with that and that's the other thing that was the other fallacy but but the problem is 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 public perception Mm -hmm. so if I go into somebody's house and I say oh I'd like to buy that cup and how much do you want for it and she says well what would you give me and I say well I'll give you a dollar for it and she says yes and then I go and sell it for ten dollars everyone's gonna call me a thief
0: yeah you're a terrible person You're a
1: terrible person you're a thief (laughs) well I can tell you I don't do antiques as a business when i did buy and sell i don't buy i don't sell really much anymore other than i'll get rid of a few personal things mm-hmm. but when i did and i declared it all on my income tax that was fine and everything i did that but i never made any money at it because you have to buy that for a dollar and sell it for 10 to make any money right. when, you,
0: when you when you factor put all the expenses in, in, yeah. in
1: it but you can't do that on tv <laughs> because yeah. you'll be considered a thief. Yeah. So we would buy something for five hundred, which is what we paid, but it might only be worth seven hundred. Well, in the real world, you'd have to buy that for two hundred, not five hundred. But we'd buy it for five hundred yeah. because, you know, you can't rip somebody off on TV in in the sense of the people that are watching that don't know anything about right. antiques. All they know is this little old lady has this thing, <laughs> and you you bought it off her for a dollar and sold it for ten. So we would we would. If we were paying our own expenses on that show, we wouldn't have made any money yeah. on that show. You know, so, so that's the fallacy about the show. Everything else about it was real. Mm-hmm. Like when you saw us go into a place, uh, we hadn't seen it before. We were walking in for the first time. We were doing the deals that we did. I mean. They show about 10% of the actual sales you, you do on that show. So we bought lots more stuff than, mm-hmm. than they show. But, you know, they have their own reasons as to why they're going to show what we bought and for what reason they're going to buy it.
0: And so when the, the, the idea came about, was it was it pitched to you or did you pitch it? or?
1: Well, it's, it's interesting how time flies. You know, it, it, A lot of people don't realize. I, get, I still get people coming up to me today and say, when are you going to put out your new... Your new series? season. Your new and I season. I say, well, yeah. we haven't filmed for eight years. <laughs> <laughs> you know.
0: Well, I, I looked it up, and, I, and it was 2011,
1: 2013. Yeah, well, wow. and it was that was when they showed it. So yes. we actually filmed two thousand and ten yeah. to two thousand and twelve. Yeah, is when we filmed. So That's, we haven't filmed since two
0: thousand twelve. Yes, and, and so I didn't. I knew it was a while ago, but I didn't realize it was, it was that Be- long Because ago. they
1: keep showing the episodes over yeah. and over and over again, and there's 52 of them. So if you haven't seen all 52, you don't realize it's right. not a new episode, yeah. right? Yeah. So.
0: And, and so, did you? So was it pitched to you, or did well? Well,
1: to get back to that, okay. So he, here's how it happened. Sheldon and I have known each other for a long time. His mom and dad were in the auction business, Smithens Auctions and my mom worked in Galvin's auction, so there was a little mm-hmm. bit of a cross-pollination yeah. there. Sheldon's older than me, um, a little bit older than me, but generationally quite different than <laughs> me in terms of how, what he collects and, and what his interests are, but we knew each other. So we didn't, we didn't buy and sell together,
0: mm-hmm.
1: other than I think one time shortly before the filming started, he would sold his antique business and we did a show in Spruce Meadows together set up okay. beside each yeah. other and we got along fine. So we were, we were friends, um, but we weren't buying and selling together. Mm-hmm. Cause he was, he, he walked in a different world than I okay. did in terms of yeah. what he thought was good and collectible and what he would buy. And, and he was an auctioneer yeah. too. He wasn't a collector, he was an auctioneer. So he would buy things he thought he could sell at auction. And, and, um, and whereas I would buy things that I wanted for myself mm-hmm. and, and you know, you start as a collector. Okay. I started as a collector but when you're a collector you end up buying a whole bunch of stuff that you hope you can sell to fund stuff that you want to buy for yourself so that's how you end up being a dealer is by doing that kind of thing so so we knew it so so that's how Sheldon and I knew each other then what happened was they started showing the american pickers yes, in the yeah. united states but it wasn't in canada and it was a big hit mm-hmm. i think it was 2 years into it yeah it was a big hit and The company, the production company, said, well, why don't we do a Canadian version of it? Because they had a Canadian office and an American office. So they got a hold of anyone that had been on the Canadian Antiques Roadshow. Remember the CBC did that for a season? And Sheldon was one of the people that was on that. He was doing watches, I think, timepieces and and other stuff. Uh, So they contacted him and they contacted a bunch of other people. And they asked him and a bunch of other people across Canada who they thought might be good to host the show. And Sheldon said, well, he gave them a the name, about eight or ten people on his list, one of which was me. Yeah. And then he called me up and he said, Scott, they're looking for two people. Would you want to, if, would you want to do it with me? And I said, well, I mean, I'm, I'm happy to You can put my name in with yours if you want. But, you know, never ever <laughs> expecting that anything was going to ever happen of it. And then at some point in time, I can't remember how long ago that, later it was, three or four weeks later, Sheldon calls me up and says, hey, they're coming out and they <laughs> want to do some sort of... Uh, test. <laughs> yeah I didn't they didn't say that. They said they just want to follow us around while we go do a, do a pick.
0: <laughs> and then and, all of a sudden you had to th- figure out what to do. <laughs>
1: well I, I didn't because I just did what just like on the show I do what I do. If you like it you like it if you don't you don't but I'm not an actor okay so that's just me. So we went out we did our thing and and it's funny you know it's it, it's I never thought of it at the time we took my little red pickup out we had to pay for our own gas Sweet. we had to pay for our own lunch we went out and they brought a, a, a director, I guess it, you'd call it the cameraman. That's all they had with them was a director and a cameraman. I think the sound was coming off the camera. And they just followed us around and we did, we did our thing. And then at the end of it, they, they asked us a few questions and then we went away. Yeah. And that was the last I thought of it. I, I, I think back in retrospect though, and I think, I don't, I don't know if you could have gone to Hollywood and gone to a casting agent and found two people that are so different but yet get along and intermesh the way we did. Yeah. I don't, I, it's just fluke because you know I've got long hair he had no hair.
0: <laughs>
1: I, I, I used to wear a cowboy hat he used to wear no hat. Uh, later on we both started wearing we, we both had cowboy hats. I had my Métis jacket on when, I, when we were doing it he had a fishing vest on. He, he's from a generation where yeah. furniture and silver is, yeah, yeah. is good and I'm from a generation where Hot Wheels and Star Wars are good. So yeah. so we're completely different but we get along and we like each other and we still do like each other. So so I didn't think of it at the time but in retrospect <laughs> I've looked at it then. So so anyway we went went away and I went back to work and, and like three months later I get a phone call and this lady says well you've got the job and I said what job? What job? <laughs> she said, you've got the job for Canadian Pickers. And I said, well, I've already got a job. She in said, fact. no, no, but you don't understand. You've got the job. And I said, well, I don't want your job. <laughs> I said, I've already got a job. So, so anyway, ultimately, they talked me into doing the first season, which was a trying adventure for, for, for a bunch of reasons because people always ask things like, Wow, did you make a lot of money doing that show?
0: Well, TV doesn't make money.
1: <laughs> well, and more importantly, more importantly, think about this. So if I were actually in the antique business, somebody's going to put me on TV to advertise my antique business. Yes. Well, how much are they going to pay me to do that? Not a lot, <laughs> right? So they didn't have a lot of money. And, and it ended up costing me a ton of money yeah, to do it's the, the opportunity
0: show. Opportunity cost of, of right. the time.
1: because yeah. what we used to do is, is, ultimately, I would work Monday to Friday. At 5 o'clock Friday, I would get picked up by uh, technically a limo, but it was really just a... Cap. Yeah. <laughs> I'd be taken to the airport. I'd be flown somewhere. Yeah. I'd get in at about midnight, because it was usually East Coast somewhere. Yep. I'd get in at about midnight, I'd get up at 7, I'd work,
0: work for 15 days. to 18 yep.
1: hours a day for three days, yep. fly home and go back to work. And then I'd leave the next Friday and do the same thing over again. And they weren't paying me anything for it. <laughs> you know? so, and in the first year, we had to use our own money. So I had to go to the Instateller every Friday <laughs> afternoon to get enough money out so I could buy the stuff we were going to buy on the weekend and and that was how we had to deal with it mm-hmm. so so the, as soon as we got back the stuff got all shipped back to us and then we had to sell it as quickly so, as we could to get yeah. the money so we could go do the next yeah, episode so <laughs> yeah, it, it's like, yeah
0: it's like yes, it's like this treadmill like uh, oh. endless treadmill
1: yeah and and it was fun when you were out doing it yeah. but but the uh, there to and there back, and and everything else. That was easy for Sheldon because Sheldon was retired at that point in time. He'd sold his antiques business mm-hmm. and he'd, he'd retired, so he could come home and go to his cabin yeah. and and relax but while you, I was working.
0: Yeah, you've you just started your own your own practice and uh, yeah yeah.
1: So the next year, I when they came back and said we want to do season two, I said I'm not doing it unless you at least make me whole to what I'm losing in this place. All right. And you give us a budget to buy, so I don't have to go to the Tell every <laughs> every Friday. Now it was our money, because in lieu of salary, they gave us a budget. You know, but but, but we would buy stuff. But it was it was in lieu it was of a part of salary.
0: part of the compensation package. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So that eventually did finish, and it sounds like you weren't necessarily sad to see it.
1: Come four to end. Four Seasons is a lot. Yeah. And it's funny, you know. It's it's funny because we were done. I certainly I was done. I can't speak for Sheldon. I was mentally done at mm-hmm. the end of the fourth season. And had they asked me to do a fifth, I probably would have said no, just because it was it was just hard. Our kids were at an age where they, you know, I was away a lot and everything. Uh, and it turned out that they ended up not doing a fifth season mm-hmm. anyway. Um, even though, it, which is, it's, I'll tell you a little funny story, because when I, I know nothing about TV. I knew nothing about TV. I know for a fair bit now. But I said to the guy before, because I never believed it would ever air. Like, I said, <laughs> I said, there's no way these, two yahoos you can film us and put us on tv nobody's going to do that they're going to see the footage and they're going to say forget it you know (laughs) cut it it's not going ahead so i never believed till the first episode actually aired that it was ever going to air (laughs) but the thing is 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 i was always concerned about where it was going how would we be perceived Mm -hmm how would we come yeah. across and it, as i say I've, I've thought i've gone back and thought about it and i've realized that we were just lucky that the two of us matched the way we did because mm-hmm. some people really liked me on the show didn't like sheldon some people really like sheldon didn't like <laughs> me some people like both of us some people like none of us yeah. but the reality of there's something there for everybody and and our interaction was relatively natural because we were just being ourselves neither right. of us are actors we were just being ourselves yeah. And I think that's why it worked. You'd be shocked how many people come up to me and say, your show is my favorite show I've ever seen. We'd get the whole family together, grandparents down to kids, and we'd watch your show. And I'd say, say what was your favorite thing that we've ever bought? And they'd go, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> they didn't watch it for that. They watched it for the interaction, to watch to see Canada, to meet people, to, to see all the interests. And that, I like that about our show. I li- we were always fighting with the, uh, with the studio, and, and, and taking back to my initial point, I asked what would be a success? And they said, well if you get 50,000 viewers, we'd consider that a success. If you got 100,000 viewers, we'd consider that a hit. Well when they cancelled our show, we mm-hmm. were getting 350,000 <laughs> viewers when they cancelled our show. And, and the reason they cancelled our show was not because our show wasn't, wasn't good for the ratings, but the reality is it's, it's the movie business. And the person that started our show was no longer with History Channel. And the person that was in charge of our show so, didn't get any benefit from our yeah, show. So there was... And they had their own ideas of shows they wanted to do yeah. that, that would be up their thing. And, and so they just took the money because ours was a very expensive show mm-hmm. to do. Because think about it, you have to ship 10 people across Canada yeah. and, and over to England a couple times. Um, it's an expensive show to do. So they thought they could take the money and do other shows without yeah, so... money.
0: Ran, ran out of passion for that idea
1: yeah exactly yeah. exactly whereas I always said you know CBC makes me laugh because CBC I mean CBC ran the beachcombers for 27 seasons okay <laughs> now if people will watch its beachcombers for 27 seasons they would have watched our show for 27 seasons and you could have changed the hosts every five years just to make it interesting uh, but there's but it's funny there's so much competition between networks they won't ever take yeah. over anything that anybody else has ever had. Not that I wanted to go any further than four years. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, it's it, it, it was a fun, interesting time. I got to meet lots of people. Mm-hmm. My, my family got to come places with me because I, I wrote into the contract that I, t- three times a year I'd get to take my family with me if I wanted to go. And So we got to see Canada, we got to see Europe, like England, England, Wales. Uh, it was a great time. It was a great time.
0: That, i mean that that's so different from all the other things that you've done and not to say the other things weren't, weren't different
1: as well yeah and, and and it's like it's like anything else in life is you if you leave yourself open and flexible opportunities will come your way you can take them or not take mm-hmm. them but they'll come your way but you, you have to take the blinders off yeah and not just think of yourself as this thing that's going to go this way and that's all you're going to do. And, and that's what we've encouraged our kids. You know, I used to say to Liam, who's... who's uh, I made the mistake of getting him into biking. And I used to take him biking and he couldn't keep up with me. The first time I remember we went about 5k and he threw up. Well now, I can't keep up with him for a hundred yards. He's an incredible cyclist, incredible runner, incredible hiker. But I said to him, do what you want to do in life and take the time you need to figure out what you want to do in life. Don't just jump from Mm -hmm. one thing, jump immediately into something and and say, that's what i got to do for the rest of my life. I sort of did that because that's the way we were raised when we were kids. It was like, you're 18? When are you moving out? (laughs) When are you getting a job? When are you moving out? That's the way we were raised. And so that's what we did. But I encourage my kids, no, take the time. Take the time to figure out what you want to do. Because it's a long time doing it. Now that doesn't mean you have to stick with it. You can do what I did. You can change. Yeah. Yeah. But, but I, I would have loved, when I was 18, to have taken two or three years just to, just to enjoy life before I went into my work career. I started working when I was 13 years old. Yeah, yeah, That's the way it was in those days. My dad would get me a job with one of his friends when I was 13. And like I used to take the bus from school down to 9th Avenue across from the brewery when I was 15 years old. Work till 10 o'clock, take the bus home. <laughs> or you're not allowed to do that anymore. I don't think you're, I think that would be child abuse now. <laughs> I and mean, neglect. Right. But, but that's, that's what you did back then. So so it's a different world. and. and yeah. In some ways it's a better world in some ways it's you know I, i'm not sure it's always been better but but it, i think it's better in the sense that most kids now have a better opportunity mm-hmm. to to try and figure out what they want to do
0: But but it seems that that now there is a change going on through the last few years that you know it used to be that very focused you know you must do these these different steps but it seems like you know over this last few years that there's been more of a, of that kind of a, of an approach to you know explore and to and to do those things that fulfill your your needs
1: yeah and and if I can say this this way I think that's I don't think that happens for everyone mm-hmm. I think that is is a privilege enjoyed by okay. by a certain yeah. class of people in the I don't mean class in a in a good way I mean class in the sense of of if you're educated and you mm-hmm. have a good job, you can afford your children the, the opportunity to do things. Yes. If if you're somebody that, that for whatever reason didn't have the opportunity to have an education and is working in a in a job where you have to work eighteen hours a day, seven right. days a week to make ends meet, you don't have the same flexibility with your kids to let them take the time to explore it. So I think I, I think to some extent my family's privileged in that regard and I think a lot of other people's families, a lot of people that have professions kids are a little bit yeah. more privileged than other kids. Yeah, I,
0: I, I would agree with you on that. Yeah, yeah, it's it's not a, I think you get a further away from the, from the realities of, you know, worrying about the next paycheck and worrying about uh, the rent or, or the mortgage payment.
1: Yeah, and I was there. Mm-hmm. I lived that life. And I don't want my kids to have to live that life if they don't have to live that right. life. Like I said to Liam one time, I said, hell, I don't care if you're a sax player in a jazz band care. If that's what you want to be, that's what you want to be. Don't don't worry about living up to our expectations. Don't worry about about doing what you think we think mm-hmm. you should do. So all. All I ask of you is this: be good at whatever you decide to do. Just be good at what you right. do, and enjoy what you do. And and if you make money at it, great. <laughs> if you don't make money in it and you're and you're living paycheck to paycheck, if you're happy, that's okay. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I, I usually ask people, well, what would they tell their younger selves? And you've sort of already answered that. <laughs> but uh, you know, what would you tell your your you know your twenty two year old self, your twenty four year old self?
1: Well, you see, i like I'm not my dad, but my dad had a lot of ideas mm-hmm. that were good. And what he told me was when he when when he wanted me to become an electrician, he said, look, he said, you don't have to be an electrician. But if you go and get your ticket, you'll always have your ticket. Mm-hmm. And if things don't go right for you, you can always fall back right. on that. So he'd say, he'd, he said to me, "Go do something like that to get yourself set, and then you can do what you want to do. Right. And, but you can always come back to yeah. it." So that, that's what I would tell. I would tell. Uh, first off, I would encourage everyone that can afford to do so to go to university. Doesn't matter if you get a profession or anything else. Just go because it's an experience to go, to meet people, to listen. And I was not one of those people that sat in and took notes. I literally went to class with a coffee in my hand and listened to what the person was saying. Mm -hmm. I enjoyed it immensely, and and it certainly changed me as a human being. I I grew up as a pretty much blue-collar kid, wasn't overly open-minded. but became much more open-minded and much more, I guess, accepting of, of the fact that nobody's the same as me. <laughs> and they don't have to be. So I would encourage everyone, to, if they can do it, to go to university or go to college or go, just do something. I would also encourage everybody to read as much as they can. There are lots of good books out mm-hmm. there. Just read. Because, again, it's one of those things that it, it helps develop everything about your personality. Uh, it helps, it gives you the ability to, to dream when, you, when you're when you experiencing things that that maybe you wouldn't otherwise experience. When I read Salman Rushdie, I experience India. Mm-hmm. I'm likely never going to experience India, but I, I can experience it at least in some way. Yes, yeah. So I would encourage people to read, and then I would encourage people to... Like my dad said, build your foundation. You can always mm-hmm. move from it, but it's there. And you can always come back to it. And that doesn't mean you have to have a trade, it doesn't mean, it, it, it could be anything. It could, you could have a hairstyling course, and you could say, okay, I'm gonna go try something else, but I can always go back and be a hairstylist. You could be a, an electrician, a plumber. You, you could be anything you want to be, but try and pick something that you think you, would, you wouldn't mind doing, and get your foundation set, and then be open to the possibility yeah. of doing different things. Because I think I think for most people that opportunity will arise. I mean, I guess it's just a matter of the more interaction you have with people, yes. the more opportunities yeah. open up to you.
0: Absolutely. And so, what's next for Scott? <laughs> have you have you got a passion that you're you're, you're you want to exercise or? Uh or a project that's in your future?
1: Yeah, let me just think about that. It's, it's, see, it's funny, you know, It's it, like, I don't want to get too philosophical here, but... but <laughs> well, by what, all means. <laughs> would I have liked to be in a professional hockey player? Yes. If somebody said to me, well, Scott, we can take you back and you can make this one decision and you'll become a professional hockey player. But it'll change your life.
0: Yes. Would, would I'd you say maybe? no.
1: No. I'd say, no, I I like my life. I like my family. I like my job. I like my environment. I like my friends. I'm content with where I am. Mm -hmm. And so I look at it philosophically, and I say, recognize that everything that happens to you happens to you for a reason. It makes you who you are, good or bad. Lots of bad things happened in my life. Uh, And they made me who I am. For better or worse, they made me who I am. And and so I, I try and experience as much as I can because it creates more memory in me. It's like my I have an 1850s um, harvest table in my kitchen. Well, every yeah. drink that was sp- spilled so on it, every crayon yeah. on it, that adds to the life of that yeah. table. And that's how I think people should view their life. It just it just adds to your overall your overall personality Mm. and it makes you who you are and my wife and I talk about all the time because she always wanted to move to BC when she was a kid but she never got to and I say to her would you rather have gone to BC when you were 18 and not had the family have she goes of course not (laughs) (laughs) of course not. I'd still would have liked to have gone to BC when I was (laughs) a kid I I think what I'd like to do I I mean there's nothing big I'd like to do but there's a million things I'd like to do
0: yeah
1: and and it's funny I I knew uh, I knew a lot of lawyers that didn't want to retire because they didn't know what they were gonna do after they, they retired
0: yeah they focused entirely I know a lot of doctors like that
1: I do not have that problem yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if we if I can get to the situation where I can retire I get a million things I'd like to do uh, that, that have nothing to do with the practice of law so I, I really want to, I cycle a lot, that's that's one of the things I love to do, I, I, I love to, I'd like to do some cycling trips with, with my mm-hmm. wife and maybe my kids if they're prepared to come with me. I'd like to, I don't, I don't, I'm not a big traveler in the sense of I don't feel the need to go to, to every country in the world and experience yeah. that, I don't feel that need, but I do like to travel. I like to go up to the Yukon. Um, my brother lives up mm-hmm. there and I used to run a race up there every year with him. And then I did a bike race up there, so I'd like to go back up there and do, do some of that stuff. But, but for the most part, I'm pretty content with where, where I'm at and where my life is. And, and I come to work, I do my work, I go home, I enjoy myself. And, and one thing I have done, and, and I should, every partner in, in every law firm will be angry at me for saying <laughs> this, but I never worked weekends unless I had to. I made that decision. I would work hard Monday to Friday. But I would take my weekends mm-hmm. off, much to the chagrin of my partners. The people before I was a partner, because I just thought that that was a way to keep myself yeah. balanced and Same. keep myself sane. Yeah. So, so I still do that. I still I rarely work weekends unless I have to get something done. If I have to get something done, then I'll come in and work a few hours on a weekend, or I'll come in to visit the cats because we have office cats here. I'll come in to visit the cats and do some work while I'm here. But but for the most part, I'm really, really happy where I'm at. I want to see my kids graduate from school. I want to see if they want to go to university. And if they do, I want to see them graduate from university. And uh, just enjoy each other. Just enjoy our families. Lana's, uh, my dad sadly passed, but my mom's still alive. And Lana's mom and dad are still alive. So we enjoy spending time with them. And, uh, and that's that's what we want to do.
0: Yeah, Scott, uh, I think that that is the perfect sort of conclusion to our, to our conversation. I think that you've got such a great view of, of, of life and of, you know, how to navigate life. It's, it's just, you know, inspiring. So I want to thank you for, for taking the time to, to talk with us.
1: Well, thanks a lot. It's, it was a lot of fun having the conversation. <laughs> it's funny that so many things you don't think about until somebody asks you the question. You know,
0: we've had so much of that kind of feedback that it it reminds people of mostly the good, you know, and, and all of the, the positive things that have happened. and. I I really hope that this is going to be also reminding other people of all the positive things that have happened in their lives. Great. Thanks very
1: much. Thank you.
0: (laughs) Thanks for listening to this episode of the Winding Life Podcast. Special thanks to Greg Mano for audio and video recording and production and to Nick Wright for audio editing and production.